0: Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of this show, Bob Schaefer. And this is Touch Them All, episode 209 here on the network. Before we get going with Bob today, just want to thank our 19,500 subscribers. We're touching on that 20,000 mark right now. Make sure you continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. The rate and review is important. It allows us to battle the analytics of the podcast world just like we do in baseball. And if you do that, we can keep providing you great content like we do here every week. Great feedback from our audience. Everybody loves your take on what's going on, Bob. So uh, I want to encourage you guys to keep streaming us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I engage one person live every day. Get back to everybody privately. We are in 72 countries, grassroots to MLB front offices. We're just trying to build a better baseball IQ out there and read this little disclaimer that our audience asked me to do for a new Listeners, just prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truths about baseball, sometimes life, as this program, like all of our others, has no time for the comforting lies that are out there. So with that, Bob, welcome back to your show here. It's good to have you back. Thanks, Dave. Good to be back. Yeah, I know we got a bunch of topics. You're, you're watching baseball all week, and I enjoy our text messages back and forth on things you're seeing. I I have a, I have a Bob Shaver notebook right now, so every time you text me, that goes in my old-school notebook right there because – I'm gonna I'm gonna build one on you just like uh, everybody did on George Kissel. We're gonna have a little. Yeah, well, I'm not George Kissel, but I, I still have notes from George when I play for him. But uh, made my own notebook, and he was a genius, no doubt about it. And should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I agree with you there. We, we've got a number of topics to get started on. I know you saw some things. Let's let's. Uh, we were gonna hit on this last show, but I, I think we'll, we'll bump this to number two or three because you saw some things this week um, that that bothered you out there in terms of fundamentals. Uh, one is that golden rule, runner on second base. There's there's rules. Runner on second base, no out. Runner on second base, one out. What, what did you see out there this week? You saw a situation that, that bothered you. Yeah, me. I was watching the Mets-Yankee
1: game, and uh it was extra innings. Of course, the guy starts at second base, and there was one out. You know, with one out, left-hander hit a long ball to right center field back near the wall, and the runner was tagging up at second base. Now, with one out, you don't tag up. You go partway mm-hmm. and The rule is basically the farther away the ball is from you, the farther away you go from the base. So he should have been like 10, 15 feet off the base. Because when the ball falls, if it's not caught, you've got to be able to score from second with one out. Well, he went back and tagged. And, of course, the ball fell. And he barely made it home. It was a, you know, real close play at home play. There should have been no contest. But, you know, that's fundamentally, that's just a bad base running mistake. Uh, You know, like I said, with nobody out, you want to tag up. And the deeper the ball is, the farther you can hang out in a base, but once you see he's going to catch it, you go back, tag up, and go to third base. So now you're in third base with one out. The whole thing is get to third with one out. You know, with two outs, you don't want to get thrown out. I mean, with two outs, you can stay at second base. So again, if um, with one out, if you catch the ball out there and you're not, you know, you can't get back and tag, you're still in second base with two outs because a catch was a second out. So nobody else, nobody out one out. It's a different situation. But, it, again, the runner has to anticipate. A lot of times the third-base coach will remind you he shouldn't have to, but he probably should because you never, never know. Some guys lose their concentration when you get on the base. So yeah. there's another another situation happened. happened. Uh, there was guys in first and second. Uh, base hit the left field. And uh, outfield made a great play to come in and get rid of the ball quick. He threw home. Unfortunately, the runner on first was not watching the runner ahead of him. He had his head down running. The third baseman cut the ball off because, you know, the guy stopped the third and they got they threw behind the runner second and they got him out of second base. So that, that ruined the beginning right there because the runner was running with his head down. You also have to know the runner in front of you, if he's going to keep going, if he's going to stop or whatever. And a lot of times, you know, once the runner is, is runs and it's going to be close play at home, the trail runner should probably keep running and maybe let him play on the trail runner so the run scores. But in this case, it was obvious that the the ball was going to be cut off because it was hard hit, and the outfielder know, really got rid of ball quick and made an accurate throw to the cutoff man.
0: Yeah. Now both both these key base running situations, you and I were talking about base running before the show. Um, you know, major league game nine innings, twenty seven outs, no more, no less. You certainly don't want to give them up on the bases. Is this a byproduct of maybe not emphasizing base running anymore? Uh, spring training, in season. No. Yeah, you know,
1: when you get to the big leagues, even when you get to the minor leagues, you should know the basics of base running. There's no doubt you have to keep reviewing it. I think a lot of it is concentration, a lot of it is thinking about, you know, anticipation, and uh, you know the Mets are going bad. And when you're going bad, little things like that mount up. And uh, I mean, there's two outs, like I said, that they had on the bases that actually ruined a couple of good innings. There was one out; the other one almost was now out, but uh, it's just something that you have to keep reviewing it. I mean, like I said. You should practice during batting practice. Batting practice is base running practice as well as fielding practice as well as batting practice. So, unfortunately, the big league teams don't take a lot of on-the-field batting practice. I mean, I know some players don't hit on the field. They'll hit in the cage all the time. But to me, that's just a miniature game at game speed. And you have to just, you know, ingrain it in your head and practice it. And, uh, you know, like that, like I said, fly ball, or man on second base, nobody out or one out,
0: it's a different situation. Yeah. Now go, go back to that first one there. We, we work on this every day, even with the, the, the younger teams that I'm working with right now. One part of our batting practice is we have reads with runners on second base with no outs and one out. So they can have yeah. repetitions with that. You know, when it's time to go halfway, when it's time to tag, when you advance on the ground, when you see it through. Um, talk through the important, because that to me, that, that's like red zone offense in football. You talk about getting the ball inside the 20, you know, good football team score. Basketball teams get the ball inside the paint. The good teams score a high percentage of the time, or get to the line. With baseball, that's the version of red zone offense. Talk talk through that runner on second. Just the, the four things I mentioned. Uh, you know, the two the two, yeah, well, the two I don't runners. know if we mentioned last time or not, but
1: uh, you know, when you're on second base or any base, you have to know where the fielders are playing. Now, on second, you got to know where the infielders are playing for sure, as well as the outfielders. But you know, the rule is the ball's hit behind you to the left of the shortstop. You're going to go to third base. That's for less than two outs, of course. And if there's other situations where if the ball is like top to third base or third base has to come in and field it, you can go to third base because no one can get to third base. So third base is open, so you got got you to know, read it, anticipate it, and go to third. Same thing with a shortstop. The shortstop has to come in on a, a slow roller. A good base runner can advance to third base. Other times you can advance to third base when the ball's in front of you is a ball deep in a hole. You know, once the ball is released by the shortstop – or the third baseman down the line, he can go to third base because he's going to beat both throws. So anticipate that, but those are very important. And when you take an extra 90 feet, that's a whole lot in, uh, during the game. It's a whole lot many times during the season you can win a game by taking the extra 90 feet. And defensively, you're, you you kind of like prevent that 90 feet from being taken. So it's all about, you know, getting the runs you should get. Get your all your 27 outs. Don't lose outs on the bases like – some teams do foolishly, and again, I think it's more like concentration, anticipation, is lacking in this game.
0: Yeah. Now, um, <laughs> going back to that runners on first and second situation, you saw where base runner was falling asleep. There's there's a tendency, as you mentioned, you mentioned it right at the end. I want you to kind of touch on that, where. The trail runner has got to almost entice that cutoff, even if, not not that you want to give up an out, but even to the point where if it looks like a bang bang play at the plate, they can, they can get caught in a rundown. At least draw the throw. In your situation, you described that guy had his head down and he just ran into the gun, basically. Um, right. I mean, oh. more, more so with two outs, you get a base hit with two outs, man at second base.
1: If you see it's going to be close play at home, you should just keep running. Let them cut the ball off and play on you. You take the out for the run. So, but if it's not no play at home plate, you can't run into an out, but again, with two outs, that'd be one time you can basically think about running into an out
0: the idea you're going to cut it off and trade a run for an out. Yeah. No, it's uh base running is huge. I, I, it needs to be emphasized. Um, as we talked before the show, I spent the last week at what was considered one of the top, uh, amateur tournaments in the country. And, uh, I left, uh, Feeling good about well, at least in in my area that I was in, there were some really good base running teams, which I liked. It was fun to watch, yeah. fun to coach against. Good bunting, good movement. So there is hope out there. At least in at least there was in my bracket. Yeah. Um, well, you know the old saying: if you don't beat yourself, you got a good chance of beating the
1: other team. And a lot of teams beat themselves by giving away outs on the bases. But another play I like to talk about in that Mets Yankee game was of Falefa Falefa stole home on a pitcher. It was a straight steal of home. Situation wise you had a left hand hitter up. Uh, the third baseman was playing way off the line, almost at shortstop and the runner had a real big lead. And I give the credit to the third base coach for, you know, tell him, don't worry about it. I got the third baseman. So he got a big lead. He must've been at least a third way down, maybe farther down. And as soon as that pitcher started his wind up, he took off, he scored, he slid into home. The pitcher looked like he tried to throw it to hitter, And, uh, so he threw it. the umpire, I think it was Bill Miller. He was he was ducking inside and that, the ball went toward the hitter and the catcher was diving to catch it. Bill Miller was <laughs> he was ducking for cover so he wouldn't get hit. But well, anyway, the ball didn't hit the pitcher, didn't hit the hitter, and the guy scored easily. But I think you know, I think he I don't know if he did it on purpose, but it's a good play if you hit the hitter because then of course the ball's dead and the runner has to go back to third base. You know, all runners have to go back to the base run. But but see the thing is that could be prevented. Whenever a pitcher goes to the windup with a runner on third base, before he starts his windup, he has to look at the runner on third. If he's got a walking lead or he has a big lead, he's got to just keep looking at him or step off anyway. You new no rules, you only step off twice. So if you keep looking at him, he's not going to go anywhere. And he's going to back off and hopefully the third baseman chug, step over there and make him back up, you know, so he can't steal home. The only way he can steal home is to start before he actually starts his delivery and beat, beat his delivery home. But that was just, that's a minor. I, I've seen a lot of times in game that pitchers don't check the runner at third before they start to wind up, and
0: that's not right. you got to check the runner first. Yeah, there's got to be an awful lot of communication that goes on there in a short time between the, the third base coach, the runner, and the hitter. That is certainly not a read situation, I would imagine, by a hitter, right? There's got to be some sort of tip-off so he doesn't take yeah. a full cut on yeah. that. Well, it was a left-handed hitter, too, but uh, it was a good play. I mean, he made it pretty
1: easily, but it was just because the pitcher – didn't do what he was supposed to do, put it that way. Do you, do you remember the situation surrounding it, number of outs, uh, time situation? Yeah, there, were, there were two outs, I think, left-handed pitcher. Of course, you know, his back is to the runner. But before he starts his, uh, windup, he's got to look at the runner yeah. and see where he is. You just can't let
0: him get that big a lead. I mean, he had a real big lead and you only had to run another 50 feet probably. Yeah. You don't see that play often I anymore. Mean, that was a I uh, know. I know Billy Martin used to employ that quite a bit, um, we don't see that often anymore, do we? No, probably because the analytics think it's a waste of an out or something. But it was a big run for him, so oh, yeah. And that's a—I think psychologically that that weighs on a team too. I mean, that's yeah, that's a punch in the gut right there to steal home on somebody. Well, that's- you know, Kiner Falefa is a pretty good fundamental baseball
1: player. Not everybody can do that, but uh, I had Brian Butterfield do it for me. Brian Butterfield is a great third base coach now for several teams, and he played for me in the minor leagues and. We're playing, and Victor Mata was a hitter. I went down and talked to Victor. I said, Victor, and he didn't speak English really well, but I said, Victor, get deep in the box. Don't swing. Butterfield's going to steal home. Now I'm walking back to third to tell Butterfield, you're all set. And I'm saying, geez, I hope the catcher didn't hear me, <laughs> but he didn't hear me, but, you know, Butterfield just, he got that walking lead. As soon as the pitcher started to wind up, he took off, and he scored, and he stole home. And Butter didn't have a lot of speed,
0: but he was a smart base runner and a smart player, and he's a great coach now. Yeah. And that's a great point that you made about speed. Being a great base runner, that doesn't mean you have to be fast. Um, no. Being a great base runner, to talk about some more attributes that have to do with being a great base runner.
1: Well, first of all, you have to know your speed. You have to know the count. You have to know the inning. You have to know the outs. You have to know the score. Like I said, everything on the scoreboard, it tells you if you can take a chance, if you can you know, not take a chance. I mean, a lot of times you're down three or four runs, you know, you got to go base to base. You can't get double off and you can't make a, uh, you can't be as aggressive than you can be when you're ahead, ahead two or three runs. But you know, it's a fine line between being aggressive and being stupid. And I think that the good base runners they, they know they know how to make turns, they know how to anticipate, they know how to get good secondary leads so they can get a good jump on a hit. And they can go first to third. And you know, more important to me than just stolen bases is a two base two base progression. That was going first to third, going second to home. And that starts with getting a good secondary lead. You're reading the ball off the bat taking your good angles around the bases. And those are things that you can practice. And like I said many times in the show that, you know, when you go first to third, that arc between first and second and second, third should be the same size arc. It shouldn't be like a big, you know, straight to second and a big loop around shortstop. But those are things you have to practice. And uh, everybody's speed is a little bit different. Everybody's abilities, their agility is a little bit different. And it's just something that you have to work on. And you work on that during batting practice or even before batting practice.
0: As a third base coach, my, my message to the, the the players has always been, your job is to get here. My job is to stop you. So I want you being aggressive. Right. I notice yes. reluctancy a lot in base runners where it's, you know, and talk through the method here. And, and, and yours is maybe different than, than what I've been used to or taught, but... You know, on that secondary lead, it's it's I, I always promote three strides, find the ball in then find the ball out, locate and then pick up your coach. But, um, you know, as a coach right there, th- do you think that weighs into the psyche of a base runner and make them more aggressive if you have that approach?
1: Well, you're right. The third base coach just stops you. You've got to keep running hard all the way and you have to be aggressive and you can't assume anything. You can't assume the guy is not going to catch the ball in the outfield. So when you're on second heading toward home. You got to be running hard all the way. And the third base coach is just there to stop you. And he's got to stay in front of you. So he has a longer time to make up his mind whether to stop you or not. A lot of third base coaches will stay running around third base and they got to make up make the decision too soon. And therefore, you know, the guy runs into outs at home plate because he had to make his decision too soon. But a good third base coach will be down the line almost halfway to home plate sometime. Yeah. But a good base runner, you can run hard. You don't, even though a third base coach is waving you, that doesn't matter. You're still
0: running hard as you can until somebody stops you at home plate. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. I, um, you know, we, we had, we didn't get to this last time. I kind of teased it at the beginning. Um, and if you got something else you want to jump to, by all means, we can do that. But I think, uh, I saw this a ton again at this high level amateur event this weekend. I see it a ton in the college world series, the progression. And as I'm watching professional baseball, I see major mix-ups with this. And to me, it's the, probably the defensive equivalent of base running, um, the, the pop-up priority. Um, to, we can go right around the field with it, but um, I'll let you start wherever you want with, with pop-up priority.
1: Well, pop-up priority, it sounds simple, but you know what? Anytime a ball's in the air for a certain amount of time, it's got to be an out. And the pop-up priority it eliminates collisions and makes basically every ball catchable that should be, catch- that should be caught. And uh, there's a few basic rules. Uh, number one, um, the infielder, and outfielder, they should not call the ball until it's on its way down. So a lot of guys call it too soon, and especially in a windy day, they call it too soon. All of a sudden, the wind takes it, and they can't get to it. You should never compensate. You got, to, you can't drift. I mean, outfielders drift sometimes going up to fly balls in the outfield. And all of a sudden, the wind takes it, and they can't catch up to it. So you got to run hard to a spot where you think it's going to come down, and then you can adjust off of that. Um, when you catch a pop up, fly ball, you should shade the sun with your glove. And get, get a habit of doing that. Uh, sometimes you got to turn sideways, you know, because of the sun the way it is. And then uh, another thing is you should always catch the ball on your web. If you're catching a web it's not going to pop out. But priority rules, uh, whenever, when someone has priority, once, they, once he yells, I got it. And you all say, I got it, I got it, I got it three times. Once the priority man calls it, the conversation is over. Now, the outfielders have priority over the infielders. Any pop-up between the infield and the outfield, it's the outfield. The infielder goes out for it, goes out, it doesn't say anything. Where the collisions happen is when two guys are calling for it at the same time. I don't hear you, you don't hear me, boom, you have a collision. The infielder should never call the ball going away from the infield. It's his ball until the outfielder calls it. So once the outfielder calls it, the infielder's got to get out of his way and, and let him catch it. But again, the outfielder can't call it too soon until he knows he's going to get it. And also, he can't call it too late where he can't give the infield a chance to get out of his way. But the biggest collisions, is the most dangerous one happens with the infield going out to the outfield, back to the infield, you know, trying to catch it. But he should never call it. The only time an infielder should call a ball that goes to the outfield is when he's facing the infield and camped under it, and waves his arms. Yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it. And the outfield should let him catch it. But that's the big thing with priorities. I mean, in the outfield... The center fielder has priority over the left fielder and the right fielder. So, again, you've got a ball left center field. Happened in our game the other day. Our left fielder and center fielder collided. But in that case there, it's the left fielder goes to catch it, don't, doesn't say anything. And if the center fielder does catch it, yells, I got it, I got it. Now, if center fielder doesn't yell, I got it, I got it, left fielder catches it with nothing being said. But if it's the left fielder calls it and the center fielder, then he calls it, um, you got problems because you may not hear each other. But if you do hear each other, once the center fielder calls it, the conversation's over. Center fielder's ball. Same thing in right field and center field. The right fielder catches it, goes after it. But once the center fielder calls it, it's the center fielder's ball. Now, uh, like I said, the ball down the right field foul line. You got the second baseman going out. You got the right fielder coming in. You got the first baseman going out. The second baseman has priority over the first baseman on any any pop-up, infield or down the right field line. So if he's going out there and he sees – you know, where the ball is, and he can catch it. He yells, I got it, I got it. Now, all of a sudden, the outfielder gets into the picture, and if he calls him off, then he's got to call him off saying, I got it, I got it. That's one time where two guys may call it. But the thing is, again, just like in, you know, when you're running the bases, when you're playing defense, you have to know where the outfielders are playing. You're the infielder, turn around, see how deep the outfielder is. That'll tell you how much room you may have to catch a pop up. Same thing down the left field line. Shortstop runs out, down the line. And he's got a better angle than the third baseman. So once he knows he can catch it, he calls the third baseman off. All of a sudden, at the, third, at the uh, left fielder comes into the picture, and he calls it. Then it's the left fielder's ball. But it's a communication thing. And just knowing the priority will eliminate a lot of problems. Now, ball in the infield, the shortstop has priority over second baseman and third baseman. Once he calls it, the conversation's over. Second baseman has priority over the first baseman, like I said before. Now, a little pop-up. In front of in front of home plate, to me, the catcher should never catch a ball in fair territory unless it's a real short pop up, because the ball, as you know, a pop up goes up and it goes back toward the infield. The spinning the ball takes it back toward the infield. So, if the catcher catches the ball in fair territory, it's going away from him. Difficult play. Once in a while, the pitcher has to has to catch it, but the pitcher shouldn't really call it unless it's really a short pop up, because it, it, again, it depends on the first baseman, third baseman, playing. If they're playing back man on second nobody out or two outs that they're, they're playing back to keep the ball in the infield they might not be able to get to that short pop-up near the pitcher's mound so once in a while the pitcher should catch it i mean he's an athlete there's no problem he, he he can catch it a lot of people don't want him to catch it but i'd rather see him catch it than somebody running full speed tripping over the mound and dropping it so again that that's the rules you take and uh yeah, you know, down a foul pop up down the first baseline. First baseman got to call the catcher off if you can get to it. Otherwise, the catcher got to try to catch it. But if the like I said, you call the the priority is outfielders over infielders and then in shortstop and so forth all the way down the line. Mm-hmm. So it's it's something that you got to practice it. You got to uh, drill in their mind how to do it. And uh, another thing, another play that you see a lot is uh, a pop up behind second base where the infielders are going out, shortstop, second baseman, both going out. If the shortstop calls, it's his ball, and then the second baseman's got to retreat back to cover second. Now, if the second baseman's going to catch it, the shortstop's got to get back and cover second. Now, there are times when they both go out and don't know who's going to catch it yet. Now, here's where the third baseman's got to go and cover second base. That's with nobody on. So the runner, you can't let the runner take a big, big turn, and then if the ball drops, get on second base. So a so, uh, third baseman's got to go to second some teams have the first baseman going to second, but I don't like that because then it gives the runner a bigger chance to take a bigger turn and uh, get a little farther off first base before he decides to go to second base. So third baseman goes to second, catch it, gets ready to cover third base in case the thing keeps going, and uh, just rotate around that way. So, again, that's something that teams have to talk about, and you know, the best way to do it is get on the chalkboard. and Like when I ran the Miley's for the Red Sox, we used to have like school, I call it school. We diagram these plays on a chalkboard, and then we go out on the field and, and go through them. But, you know, you do your talking inside, you do your playing outside. So it's a lot easier to diagram it on a chalkboard inside and show everybody what it is, and then they can learn it that
0: way. Yeah. That little situation you talked about with the shortstop, second baseman, uh, center fielder, all kind of converging, and uh, neither middle guy committing to getting it or getting back. My younger son actually got a I, – I, I, I guess it wasn't a cheap double. It was a smart double. Um, yeah. Looped one in there and uh, ended up beating the second baseman back to second because he came out of the box hard looking yeah. for a ball. Um, his son, son Tanner did that. So it was I, we saw that firsthand. Um, with, with, I like the analogy, and, and touch on this again. You had, the, you had the communication with your base runner where their job is to go hard, and it's the third base coach's job to stop them. With the infielder going out on and pop flies, I see a lot of reluctance with this. That ball goes up; they should turn and go, correct? And it's the outfielder's job, much like the third base coach, to halt them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I say it's the infielder's ball
1: until the outfielder calls it. So, in other words, you're going out and you you know facing the outfield, back to the infield. You got to go after it like you're going to catch it. If you don't hear anything, you got to catch it. or try to catch it, but once you hear the outfielder call, you got to you know get out of his way. And again, the outfielder can't call last second. You got to call soon enough to let the infielder back off or get out of your way. Sure. You can't call it you know about two seconds before you catch it. So that's just a technique that you have to practice and you have to like know. But that thing about pop-ups, yeah, I think it's important to practice, you know, taking your eye off the ball. A lot of times you're going toward the stands where you're going through the outfield fence. You gotta take your eye off the ball, find the fence, and pick the ball up again. And that's something that has to be practiced. That's not easy to do. But if you practice it, you know, you can do it. I mean, you watch a good infielders go toward the foul, you know, the stands and everything, or outfielders go toward the wall. They always take your eye off the ball, find the wall, pick the ball back up again, and sometimes two, three times. But again, that's something that you practice. And, you know, when I was coaching, we used to hit the fungos. Now, everything's with the machines. Maybe the fungos were better. I mean, it's more true than a, a battered ball. Not quite the same, but it's more true than the guys hitting, you know, fungos with a, with a uh, machine. And yeah, i I'll see him hitting ground balls with a machine. It drives me crazy to see it. I mean, that's like you know. I'm, I guess I'm too old school, but uh, you know, if you can't hit a fungo, you shouldn't be coaching. What's the rationale with the, using the machine? I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. Other than the fact it's it's easier. It's easier for the guy who stands there, and puts a ball in the machine. But yeah, I guess they lazy, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just don't understand. It. I mean, it's like I used to love to hit fungos, and I was pretty good at it because I couldn't hit it when they threw it to me. But I was pretty good at hitting fungos, but. I took you know, pride in that. You know, I mean, when I first started coaching in the big leagues, we took infield every day, except yeah. maybe Sunday. And I could, hit the, I, I could hit the pop up to the catcher once yeah. I screwed up, but most of the time I was pretty good. And, uh, but again, it takes practice, and, uh, and that's what it's all about. But infield practice is more like showtime. You know, you hit them two hoppers, three hoppers, and it's a, it's a rhythm. But it was fun to take infield. Now, when you hit fungos during batting practice, you want to hit top spins and stuff like that. So it's a little bit different. But, you know, infield practice was fun. And uh, now, you know, outfielders' arms aren't too good because they don't practice enough. I mean, when I was an outfield coach in LA, we used to throw the out, throw to the bases all the time. Like we said before, you know, no cutoff man, just throw one hop. And every home stand, first, second, second, third day in, we throw, you know, every base, every outfit, so each base, second, third of home, maybe four or five throws. And uh, we got but good at it. And uh, our philosophy was, you know, I'm going to throw runners out. And once they find out we could throw you out, they won't take the extra base. But again, you cut down that 90 extra feet, it makes a
0: big difference in the course of a game and the course of a season. I, I stole that from you this, this past weekend, the one hopper. I started using that with my team after our last podcast as opposed to yeah. kind of delaying for the cutoff, man. And it, it did, did two things for us. One, it made our outfielders more decisive in terms of just getting into the crow hop and, and cutting loose. And it made our cutoff guy move his rear end more quickly to get to the spot because um, we, we had to have that as a viable option. But all three things we talked about today, um, with base running, with the, um, the the pop-up situations, and then now we bring up the cutoff, all those things make the player more decisive in terms of what they're doing and cuts out that, that just moment of pause that causes the extra 90 feet to happen.
1: Well, the thing is, too, as an outfielder, if you know you can't throw one hop to the base, you just throw to second base. Whereas before, if you say hit well, I can I can, I can throw it to the cutoff man, but the problem is the cutoff man now he's got to relay at home. Yeah, you're not going to relay too many throws to get a guy from second base at home. The relay man, like I said before, is the guy in the outfield. He relays the ball from the outfielder to third base or home plate. The outfield, like I said, he's a relay man. The cutoff man and I control. I call him the control man. Is one in the infield, and when the uh, you know the outfielder throws one hop to the base. If the control man is deeper, he can cut off any throw. It very rarely will go over his head. But second of all, it's online. It's a one hop throw to home. And, you know, ball never gets higher than the catcher's waist. It's easy tag play. And I've seen a lot of games I've seen last week. To some guys been getting thrown out, and it's all one hop throws. But the thing is, you can practice on one hops, too. I mean, you don't have to. Hitting the cutoff man is tough. If you think about it. You can get so ball, what, 120 feet, 150 feet to hit the guy in the chest where you want to hit him. But if you throw one hop to the base, it would be 160 feet away or I don't know what the you know distance is. But you can miss that spot on the ground and still be a good one hop throw. You could be within 10, 15 feet where the first hop, where the hop starts, and it can still be one hop to the base. And uh, I think it skips on grass. And it, I don't know if it picks up speed, probably not. But it's not slowing down too much, that's for sure. But it's on one hop before the game, throw one hop to each other. We used to have a drill. We got like two men on each side, you know, maybe 120, 140 feet away. We throw one hop to this guy and the guy next, and he, he catches on one hop, throw back to the guy, the other guy, and he catches on one hop, like your base hit. And so throw, throw. it went back and forth, zigzag back and forth. And it was a good drill, and and they liked it. I mean, you got to practice that because the toughest throw you make in baseball is to throw the ball back to where it came from. Pitcher, I mean, catcher's on the second base, he's got to close up. And he's got, you know, stay closed and he's got to, you know, make an accurate throw. But when you throw like left field, it's on a second base. He's already basically closed up when he catches the ball. So you does not have to do that close up and open up the throw. So you have to practice that. And uh, outfield throwing home on a base hit, he's throwing back where it came from. And that, that's tough. It takes a little good footwork and keeping your body closed and your left shoulder closed so you can get more of an accurate and stre- uh, strength on your throw.
0: What about, you know, outfield, let's say, gets a, gets a ground ball, um, the footwork getting into the crow hop, you know, it's counterintuitive to, to how you walk. You know, you get the gloves, you get the, the glove foot and the glove, um, the glove and the glove side foot down at the same time out in front. Um, so you can drive that back leg through, get to the next step and then kind of get that little tilt. Can you, can you walk through, I know it's not a visual show, but can you yeah. walk the footwork of, of that for our audience? Well, you got to
1: kind of feel it off your left foot. Yeah. Okay. You feel off your left foot. If you you're right, hop. yeah. You feel it. You're, you're right-handed thrower now. So you feel it off your left foot, and then you come up, bring the ball to your chest, crow hop with your right foot, close up, and throw. It's tough to talk about, it, but you can you can visualize. But but you have to do it. You know, keep the ball just off your left foot, out in front of you, maybe even outside your left foot sometimes. And then as you bring it up, you, you crow hop with your right foot. Then you step with your left foot and throw. So it's like uh, it's all in one motion. Just like outfielders, uh, you know, it just drives you crazy when you see a guy have fly ball, a sacrifice fly situation. It's a fly ball, catch it. The is camped under, flat-footed, catch it, takes two crow hops to throw. The first crow hop should be done before you catch it. Then you, then you take another crow hop and throw it. It's like infielders. To me, infielders got to be, you know, pick it up, Crow hop and throw. Don't pick it up, crow hop, then crow hop and throw. But be under control when you catch it so you can crow hop and throw all in one motion. Now, there's certain balls that kind of handcuff you. Well, you got to catch the ball, then regather yourself. So you might have to take two crow hops in that situation. But it's just like getting back to feeling, you know, catching pop-ups. You know, when you camp underneath the pop-up, it's like catching a ground ball. You got to center the ball in the middle of your body. I've seen guys sort of catch a pop-up, and all of a sudden it drifts a little bit, and they reach over left, they reach to the right, and that's where you drop balls. You guys move your feet, just shuffle your feet so you catch right in front of your eyes.
0: I like that. That's, um, it, and what's great about it is and that's why I always ask you the challenge of, you know, being an audio show. You have a way of, um, taking your simplicity on the other side of complexity. You're taking these very complex situations, you have the ability with words to break it down. So I, I appreciate you doing that. Well, I'm going to move you to, uh, Something that's a sore spot for both of us here, and that's um, attire during games with uh, yeah. the managers, coaches. Um, you know, I know Major League Baseball is supposed to have some sort of but to talk about what's bothering you there with attire. Well, I just, it just bothers me to see
1: a manager or a pitching coach go to the mound and he's got like a hoodie on or some kind of sweatshirt on. I mean, to me, they should make these guys wear the Major League uniform. This is the Major Leagues. It's not the American Legion team or the City League team, it's the Major Leagues. But it just looks very bushly when they walk out there. It's hanging out of their pants. And it looks like they're trying to be Mr. Cool or something. I don't know. But you look at the veteran managers. Most of the veteran managers wear a uniform top. It seems like the younger guys are the ones that, you know, showcase or whatever we want to do. So I just, you know, I just think that Major League Baseball, yeah, you know, it's a uniform. It's not a costume. Major League Baseball should have some kind of enforcement of making the guys wear the uniform the right way. Or at least the coaches wear, you know, the, the uniform top. I know that uh, for a while they were finding some managers because they said they had the uniform top underneath their sweatshirt. Now, if it's cold out, you can wear a jacket. I got no problem with guys wearing jackets. I had a problem with Joe Madden wearing his stocking cap, but, you know, Chicago is cold and everything. But to me, you wear a baseball hat. But, you know, Joe's a great manager, and I respect him, and I know him pretty well and everything. And But Joe is Joe. But I'm just saying that there should be some uniform, you know, uniform cops or something just. I mean, like I said, it's the major leagues. So, you know, look like a major leaguer and wear the uniform. Be proud of the uniform and wear it. That's what I'm saying. Again, if it's cold, wear a jacket, you know, like a a team jacket that, you know, zips up in the front or, you know, buttons up or zips or snaps or whatever in the front. But to wear something with a little hoodie on it and the back of it and, uh, or, you know, like what you wear under your uniform for, you know, you call them gut shirts, but they're like under uniform. It just, it just looks like, uh, it's not right for me. Is it prevalent now throughout Major League Baseball? Are you seeing this everywhere? Well, yeah, I see it. Uh, you know, I think probably it's 50-50 with the big leagues. I mean, you watch games. I mean, uh, you know, I think that more guys do wear the uniform that don't, but I didn't, never counted. But uh, I know like Dusty Baker and those, you know, better known, uh, you know, Bruce that they, they wear a uniform top. You know, they might wear a jacket, which is fine. You know, I think Buck Showalter wears a jacket all the time. But, but you know, that's – it's just a pet peeve of mine i just you know i'm old school i guess probably too old but it's just that's how it is you know and then another thing is sometimes some of these uniforms uh, so especially the special uniforms they wear in the big leagues there's no contrast between the numbers and the uniform and it happens i see a lot in the minor leagues where you know you can't see the number i mean they put a number on so people know who the player is a lot yeah. of them have the names on the back besides <coughs> Excuse me. But some of, some of the uniforms, there's no contrast. So you can't read the number from, unless you're like 15, 20 feet away. But you're up in the stands. You can't read the number or the name because there's no contrast. I don't know if you've seen that, you know, in person or not. But that's something that, you know, going to games, seeing it. And uh, I just, something's got to be done about that, I think. These are those new city, Were they they call The city, city Connects? Is that the new uniform? Yeah, yeah. And I I... There's some other ones. I mean, I noticed really in my leagues the other day I was watching a team and uh, I'm saying, how are you supposed to know who anybody is? You can't even read the things. You know, it's just that they, they blend in together and there's just no contrast. So it's a little thing, but it's something that to me, they must have analytics making uniforms too. So maybe they can fix that up a little bit.
0: <laughs> well, the, the phrase you made, I wrote it down too. And I, I think hopefully that resonates with our audience. And I always took pride in my uniform. And, and again, I hate to go back to our big tournament this weekend, but told the kids before you step on the field day one, there's going to be 200 colleges there. Every major league club's represented. There's going to be 40, 50 retired scouts, plus the event's going to have their people out there. I want your shoes shined. I want your belt straight, uniform tucked in, hat on straight. If you got eye black on, it's one stream across under the eye, not the crosses, not the smear down the face. It's black. It's not going to be any multicolor. If you got your batting gloves on, wear them right. If not, stick them in your back pocket. (laughs) and let's make sure our gloves are clean and our bats are clean. Everything's going to be sharp. And, uh, and, and, and you know, the, the biggest question I had, and I want to get your thoughts on this, because I know uniforms change over time and our kids looked fine. Some of them like to wear those knickers. Some of them like to wear the bootleg pants. I know for a while those, those bootleg, uh, pants got a little out of hand where they were going down over the cleats. But, um, you know, uniforms in general, you know, outside of the, the, the coaches and managers, uh, there's a way to wear it, correct? You're right. And, you know, good for you for uh, enforcing that with
1: your players. I think that if everybody did that, it'd be a whole lot better game. But, uh, you know, you got to respect the game, respect the uniform. You know, fortunately, my first year in professional baseball, I was with the Yankees. <clears throat> when I taught high school, I made kids get haircuts. And, uh, you know, the principal said, well, you really can't do that. I said, well, I'm going to do it. And I used to have so many parents that I can't wait for baseball season, so many kid would get a haircut. And that was when the, the long hair came in, you know, long sideburns and stuff. And, and one day that uh mayor's kid came into my office and he was a catcher. He's a pretty good player. He says, I'm ready for baseball to start tomorrow. I said, well, Jack, let me tell you something. You got to cut your sideburns. You got to cut your hair a little bit. Well, you can't make me cut my sideburns. I said, you're right. I can't, but I can cut you. You know, that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> and, and his father thanked me for it a lot. But uh, anyway, so I got a job with the Yankees and, and they still have rules over there, which I really respect, you know, haircuts and wear the uniform, right? But we had to players had to blouse their pants first of all you wore we wore stirrups like very few guys wear stirrups now and they had to blouse your pants in other words you had to roll it so that you know it rolled over below your knee and you could see half your sock and the other was like you know the stirrup part basically and that's what a baseball player looked like and now they, they go you know long socks you know no stirrups and but yeah i mean that's not terrible but you know, some of these pants are baggy. They come down over the shoes and stuff like that. And, again, I'm old school, and uh, I just respect the guys. I mean, Joe Walter still wears the stirrups. A he few does. guys do. Uh, we had Juan Pierre, who was, to me, the ultimate professional. When I coached him, he wore stirrups. He just looked like a baseball player. And uh, I'm not saying the stirrups got to be for everyone, but I just think that you wear the
0: uniform the right way. It's not a costume. It's a uniform. Yeah, and you, you mentioned haircuts too. I know in today's world – you know, everything's individual people, even the way they do these tournaments sometimes it's, and even the pros, it's, it's like they're all individual independent contractors sometimes, but once yeah. you see, see what you like on this comeback, I, I did have a, a young man talk to me about hair length and I didn't get too specific about it. Other than I said, I want it, I want it neat and trimmed. And, and he was not being disrespectful. He made he made kind of a joke because we have a good relationship. He goes, no, well, Jesus had his hair long, you know? And I said, I'll tell you what, <laughs> When, when you can walk on water, you can wear your hair as long as that. <laughs> that's so a good that, comeback. And you like just, <laughs> until then, just put the ball in play, for God's sakes. Yeah. But, uh, well, that. you mean,
1: to me, a big league player, even a minor league player, you're still a role model. You know, these kids come up, what you do, they're going to do. You're a role model. and I just think you should have a little pride in your appearance. I mean, there's, there's guys out there that's center fielder one of the teams. He's got long hair. I don't know if you got grease on it or whatever, and then he's got a shaggy-ass beard. And it's just like, are you kidding me? I mean you gotta have a mirror somewhere in your house to see what you look like. You can't think you look good. And or a friend, right? To not let you out of the house like that. I know. And then yeah, uh, you know, the old thing is you you look good, you feel good, you feel good, you play good. And that there's a way of you know, wearing a uniform and having a little pride in, you know, your home team or your team. But again, I'm old school, maybe too old, but but I have certain principles that I was taught and I was, you know, enforced it. And like I said, the Yankees started in the minor leagues. And if you didn't have your pants bloused, you know, like Bill Livesay come around, he had enforced the rules that Steinbrenner put out, you'd be in trouble. And uh, so it was just, a, it was a discipline. And, it was, and a lot of, even now with the Yankees, I mean, there's guys that get traded to the Yankees that have, you know, Johnny Damon had long hair, went to the Yankees, get your haircut. Okay. I mean, I think the players really want discipline. They really want to look good. They want to act good. But you have to enforce it and you can't let them all go their own different way, I don't think. Now, the big leagues, of course, are different than, than, you know, high school, college and
0: little leagues. But uh, I still think you need to have a little pride in how you look and how you act. I agree. And I want to I want to end on this note here, because I think it's a great point, especially for we got, you know, kids all the way from, you know, Little League Baseball supports us all the way to, you know, we got front offices. So I think it's a good message. You hit on it. I believe in this also. and I believe, Bob, keep being old school because eventually we're going to come back in style, I believe it, without a doubt. Um, in terms of discipline, and discipline gets such a, a negative word out there. It's not. It's, it's doing things the right way. and Everybody's got their, their their own way of doing it. But, you know, doing what has to be done when it has to be done, doing it that way every time. Um, but I believe the same thing you do. I think players want to be in a disciplined situation. They want to be in a situation that demands from them. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, they do. I mean, the thing is, like, I had rules when I managed, and uh, every one of my rules were designed to make you a better, ba- better baseball player. I say, you know, I'm trying to break your stones, but if you try to break my stones, I'm going to win because I'm going to get you. But the thing is, everything you do is to make you a better player. I mean, be on time, you know, be at the ballpark. I mean, I run hard all the time, play hard all the time, and, you know, look like a baseball player. And, you know, the, the grooming code is one. Uh, you know, a lot of guys have beards now, which... If they're trimmed up, they look nice. We had a guy Casey Blake. He was clean looking. He had a beard, but he was clean looking. And just you know, have a little pride in your appearance. That's what I think. But again, I, the, the players want this. sometimes they need to be led into discipline, but they really appreciate it in, in the long run. And uh, I, like I said, I was you know fortunate to work for the Yankees my first couple of years, and then uh, other teams got a little more lax. But when I managed, I had my own rules that they had to follow, and there was no problem. But if you explain to them, this is why you got to do this. This is why we're doing that, all this stuff. And, you know, we had there making them a better player. All the rules are based on making you a better player.
0: That's it. At the end, I get that sense. I know our audience does from you as well. Nothing that you say is ever arbitrary. It's all designed to, you know, help that guy uncover and discover their potential. And these little things sometimes, I think, become distractions and get in the way from doing that. It becomes about... Oh. Um and, and I like this. I hope our audience picked up on this. it's a baseball uniform, it's not a costume. Um yeah, well, like thinking. you said, you said before, when you talk to your kids,
1: you don't know who's watching it. I mean, there's scouts here, the scouts there, there's you know, front office people watching If you go out there and look like a bum, that's gonna detract from what you what you can do, I think. I mean, it shows you a lot about your character, your appearance to a certain extent. Absolutely. And I said, you know, if you don't have any pride in your appearance, then how much pride are you gonna have in your you know, your uh Performance and everything, so I'm not saying it's good for everybody. But same token, uh, do everything you can to make yourself more, you know, more desirable for someone to want to
0: coach or you know sign or or whatever. Well, I'm going to tell a tiny story to reinforce everything you said today. And I, the very first scout that saw me play and ended up being instrumental in me in me signing eventually, saw me as a ninth grader. I barely weighed 115 pounds. I was probably five foot five, five six on a good day, playing second base with a, in a state, a state championship run. He followed me back to the school, uh, an hour and a half away after the game. I did have two hits in that game, but they weren't screamers. There was no exit velocity on them. There was certainly no <laughs> and yeah.
1: uh,
0: against a kid that was going to go to Georgia and followed me back. And he said to me straight up, he goes, son, I'm not going to write you up today because I'll probably get fired for writing up a five foot, 615 pound second baseman but yeah. I'm going to keep an eye on you and I'm going to promote you. I'm going to tell you why. He goes, you hustled on and off the field every single time. Right. You ran ground balls out. You took extra bases. You wore your uniform knee. And he's like, and every time you received the ball during infield practice with your first baseman throwing it, you approached it. Like it was, the game was on the line and you threw the ball aggressively back to the first yeah. baseman. You didn't lob it back to her. And he's like in the kicker. I saw you talk to your coach and be coached and corrected. I saw you talk to your parents after the game. And there was respect there, so there's hope for you. Um, yep. and uh, that never left me, and I share that with every player I coach because uh, that was a testament that somebody was watching me. And he, yeah, there were they're honest, Bob, there were 20 other players on that field that they that were better than I were, that were better prospects, no question. Yeah, there. um, but that 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 stuck that stood out with me.
1: Well, that sounds to me, I was a five six second baseman, weigh 140 pounds in high school, and matter of fact. One of my guys that played with us, he ended up playing big-time football. He wrote a book about how to coach your kid, and he used me for an example. We had a kid. He was a, you know, a year younger than everybody else, played second base, couldn't hit the ball really good, but played hard, knew what he was doing, smart player and all that kind of stuff. And then he told me that was you, and I, I looked at it. I said, yeah, I think that might have been me, and he said it was. But that's you know, to me, that's a good scout right there that, that recognizes that stuff and watches it. Like I said, when you scout, you got to watch the game in person. You can see stuff like he saw in you. And it turned out that, you know, he was right. It took yeah. you to get a little more mature a little stronger whatever. But that that's what it's all about. Play the game the right way. Have fun playing and
0: learn. Yeah. And I think and that's a get- great way to, to leave. Uh, how, what, what kind of message do you want to leave our audience with today? Or is that a good way to good way to wrap it up? Well, that's a good way. I mean, the thing is, have fun. And
1: like I said, don't be afraid to discipline someone. I mean, I, I'm not a big yeller and scream. I don't think I should ever get yelled scream anyway. But get them to the side. And like I said a couple times ago, the timing of coaching is more important than coaching yourself. Sometimes you got to talk to a kid right away. Sometimes you can let him, you know, let him, alone, let him alone for a while. But the timing of coaching is more important than anything. And over-coaching is worse than under-coaching. But, again, wait for a kid that needs to be coached before you approach him. Just like uh, if he doesn't want to change his stance and change something to what hitting, it's not going to work. He's got to basically come to you or you got to talk to him and say, you know, I think I can help you. There's no absolutes. You know, I think you shouldn't say, I, you can do this, do that. And you shouldn't chastise anyway. I I can't stand when I see a game and the coach will, like, uh, berate a kid. I mean, now it's no fun to the kid. He's going to screw up all the time. And, uh, you know, and again, you know, really reinforce the positives. I mean, the old days, we could break up a double play. A lot of times we win a game, and we won it because the guy broke up a double play, which extended the inning, and we ended up winning the game. Unfortunately, you can't do that, and they are taking of the skill out of the game because you can't do that. But it's just, you know, be positive what you do. And I always said, you know, start with a positive note. Then you can, you know, do something, you know, say a negative thing, but then go back to a positive thing. I know one thing when, when the guys didn't run the ball out, I kind of ignore it the first time. Next time I said, are you tired? He said, no. I said, well, let me tell you what, if you're tired, you sit next to me. Next time you run the ball out, you sit next to me. That was before, you know, we could find guys. And I didn't really find anybody, but you know, they get the message. And a lot of times they lose the concentration. They don't mean bad by not running the ball out, but, I also, I mean, you got to give me a good effort down the line every time. You're not out to make – I mean, you, you got to keep running hard until they make you out. That's it. But just communication is a big thing. And, uh, you know, when you start being the enemy to the coach or to the player, you got no chance.
0: Yeah. You're, yeah, you, you hit on a roll, and I hope our coaches out there hear that. Your, your job as a coach is never let the bar drop. They're counting on you to keep that right. bar. That's why you're a coach. I think people people – People need coaches because they can't do that on their own. They don't necessarily want to run it out all the time. They don't want to work all the, all the time. If you can take the role and the way Bob described it here today, I think we'll be a lot better coaches out there in the long run. Well,
1: again, you coach to make players better. You don't coach to make yourself look better. And there are some coaches out there that coach to make themselves look better. And it's like, you know, if you got a guy that can't bunt, don't have him bunt. Work with him next time so he can bunt. But sometimes they'll make a guy bunt to make himself look good. Well, we bunted, but didn't work. Well, no. You got to do something to work and put a guy in a situation where he can have success doing it. Yeah, and I think another thing, coach can be very uh, if he's positive with a player. I'm mean, going to tell you a story. When I took over Kansas City, oh, we got a couple more minutes, I guess, right? Yeah. When I when I managed Kansas City, I talked to every player. I didn't, I told him I don't know how long i would be manager, but as long as I'm manager, I'm going to tell you what I think of you. We had a guy named Emo Brown, and I told him, Emo, let me tell you something. I think you're better than you think you are. You can run, you can throw, and you got power. I said you're my right fielder every day. I don't care if you strike out four times tonight, you're still a right fielder. If you strike out four times tomorrow night, we might have to think about this a little bit. <laughs> and he laughed. And then about, you know, about maybe three days later, uh, we got, we're got we down a run in the eighth inning, get a guy in first, first and second. And uh, he's got, no, man up first. And he's got 2-0 count. The guy in front of us 2-0 count. So I called him over from the on-deck circle. I said, Emo, come here. I said, it looks like this guy might walk. If he walks, they think you're going to bump. Well, let me tell you what, you're not going to bunt. You're going to hit a ball, look for a ball out over the plate, and drive it up the alley somewhere. I just put that thought in his mind. Okay, sure enough, he walks, first pitch, line drive, left center field, and uh, we end up winning the game. And he felt so good about it, but I put that thought in his mind and maybe giving him a little bit of confidence that he's good and he can do it made me feel more comfortable, more more relaxed, so to speak. So after the game, George Brett says to me, he says, uh I'm surprised you don't have him bunt. I said, George, bunners don't hit and hitters don't bunt. He's one of my hitters. He don't bunt. It's, it worked out. I mean, if he hits into a double play, I would look bad. But as a coach, I mean, if the, the play was basically in, in those days, anyway, it was like, you know, with late yeah, you know, early 90, yeah, 2000, not with ninety, I guess, early nights In those days, you'd bunt in that situation. But if I bunt to make myself look good, but – I want to make him look good and do his best for him, but give him the confidence to know that he can drive in a run and help us win the game. Yep. And afterwards he, he thanked me so much at the end of the season. And Mike Sweeney said, you know, Emil, he, he owes a lot to you. I said, no, he owes a lot to himself because he did it. I told him what he could do. I helped him do it, but he did it. And that's what it's all about. I mean, you're a coach. Your, your job is to make guys better not
0: just make yourself look good. Absolutely. And that situation to our, I know uh, we, we we bang on the analytics. That's a situation the analytics cannot uncover and discover that relationship you had with, with the player. So Bob, thanks so much for today. I mean, awesome, awesome information for our audience. Um, I know I got smarter from it. I take a ton of notes while you're writing. Sometimes I pretend I'm an audience member, just take notes and get caught up in that. But, um, you know, to, to our show here, touch them all with Bob Schaefer and our audience, make sure you continue to Download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We have 19,500 faithful followers now from 72 countries, grassroots to MLB front offices. Stream us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'll get back to one person live every day. Um, Keep following us. Keep supporting us. We can keep giving you great content like we're doing here on this show every week with our episode 209. All we're trying to build is a better baseball IQ. And again, our audience asked me to read this, so I will certainly do it. Just prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truths about baseball. As this program, like all of our others, has no time for the comforting lies out there. So, Bob Schaefer, thanks so much for Touch 'Em All, episode two hundred nine. Great job today, Bob. Okay, thank you. Maybe we we'll talk about Bunning next time. Oh, without a doubt, we got Bunning on the docket. And okay, <laughs> have a great day, audience.